0: Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm very pleased today to have as my guest Mary Kay Lumbino, Emily Hargrove Fisher and Richard B. Fisher, Curator of Collections and Assistant Director for Strategic Planning at the Francis Lehman Loeb Art Center here at Vassar College. We're going to be talking about Mary Kay's exhibition at the Center through April 14th entitled Freehand, Drawings by Inez Nathaniel Walker. Oh, Mary Kay.
1: Hi, how are you doing? I'm
0: doing well. Welcome back. So, Thank you. To start, who was Inez Nathaniel Walker? Who is she and how did she become an artist?
1: That is probably the most fascinating part of the story mm-hmm. because she was born in 1907 in the South mm-hmm. and lived somewhat of a tumultuous childhood. Her parents died early on and she kind of went from family member to family member and was married very young and had four children all along she was working on farms and she really hated farm work Uh and so with the great migration she moved up north she started in philadelphia and she worked at a pickle processing plant Uh there then she ended up moving further north to upstate new york where she worked at the Mott Apple Processing uh Plant, and that's where she lived much of her adult life Mm -hmm. until she was in her early 60s, and that's when everything changed. Uh She committed a manslaughter murder where Mm -hmm. she was defending herself against her abuser. He was in his 40s, and she killed him and turned herself in and therefore went to prison she was sentenced to no more than four years of prison mm-hmm. and during the two years that she ended up serving before she got out on parole, she began to draw and that's how she became an artist uh-huh. yeah so that is one of those stories that's somewhat typical of self-taught artists where uh-huh. you have a life-changing event in your life yeah. and it has a sort of effect that causes you to turn to art for whatever reason.
0: So interesting, it's not as though they had art classes in her prison, was it? She just used what material she had available, probably what little was allowed into her cell, right? Well,
1: it actually didn't occur at the beginning in her cell. It was in an English class, a remedial Uh, English Uh class that most prisoners were offered. She maybe wasn't very literate at that point, so I don't think she was terribly engaged by this English class. And so she would just take whatever pieces of paper they oh, had given oh, her, oh. flip them over, and start drawing on the back. Oh,
0: interesting. Yeah. yeah. So Walker an artist that's virtually discovered by a Vassar alumna, Patricia O'Brien Parsons, and I wonder if you could tell us about that, about Pat Parsons, who was a big part of the Francis Lehman Art Center over the past years. It has been. I mean, James, at your opening talk, gave a really lovely introduction about her. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. And
1: she was a really interesting person. Yeah. Um, she was known for this very vibrant spirit and she had a very intrepid attitude towards the world and she was presented with these drawings that were made in prison by the english teacher who Mm -hmm. had been teaching the class while she was running a gallery called Webb and Parsons gallery Uh and the only reason that that happened it was very serendipitous Inez Walker was serving time at the Bedford Correctional Facility And Pat's gallery was in Bedford. Uh And they'd become known for doing kind of wacky things because they'd done a big folk art show. And so someone told this English teacher, you should go show these to Webb and Parsons. Uh And as soon as Pat saw them, she was really intrigued by them. And very soon after, she went to visit Uh Inez in prison, Uh which, you know, that was probably a pretty, Bizarre thing to do Mm -hmm. And this would have been in 1972 Uh Pat was also Raising two daughters And running this small gallery In a pretty conservative Westchester town So she Made a deal basically with the artist That she could supply her With some art supplies And she would sell Her drawings for her Mm -hmm. And then that actually began A whole life for Pat In collecting and selling Self-taught art.
0: Mm-hmm. Ah, well, that was the beginning of that her interest beginning. in outsider art. That's yeah, so interesting. Yeah, she didn't really
1: know um, uh, that much about it prior uh-huh. to that. But, you know, this was also a moment when that wasn't a big part of the art world. Yeah. It was very well, early yeah, on.
0: Yeah, yeah. there weren't a lot of people trading in outsider art. Um, yeah. You know, so
1: then by, um, by 1996, Pat had contacted James Mundy mm-hmm. and some other museum directors yeah. And offered donations of artworks. And at that point, she gave us, in 96, two works Uh by Inez Walker. Then later, in 2005, that conversation grew uh, over the years. And she decided she wanted to give a much larger gift Uh to the Loeb. And she ended up giving a little over 100 work by various artists. Outsider artists. Yeah, know. and wow. that really changed... That's really some gift. It uh, was an amazing uh, yeah. gift, and many of them were completely unknown. Some of yeah. them were a little better known. But she really convinced James uh-huh. that he should begin collecting in this area. Uh-huh.
0: Oh, great. And yes. he
1: had experience with it because he'd been at the Milwaukee Art Museum yeah, yeah. where they have a fantastic collection.
0: Yeah, so he was open to it. Yes, he was, uh, yeah. which,
1: is, which is fantastic yeah. because... It, he's
0: an old master's person. Yes, so. that's right. <laughs> so, yeah. <coughs>
1: and uh, yeah, these, these have a yeah. very different feel to them. And then in 2014, we also were given more works by yeah. Inez as a bequest after oh. Pat Parsons died. Oh, oh. Yeah. So that really not only was the beginning of Vassar collecting this material, yeah. but it was really the beginning of Inez Walker's work being collected by museums at all, because in 1996, she also gave a number of works to the American Folk Art Museum uh-huh. in New York City.
0: And some of the Items in the show are from that Yes, gift. the yes, majority yeah. of the are From there, yeah, um,
1: yeah. About 40 works.
0: So have you collected outsider art apart from her gifts? Or, yes. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's really sparked an interest in outsider has, art. Yeah, and it has, yeah.
1: and it's very easy to add to that collection yeah. because there are fantastic prices that you can find out there. Yeah. She also gave a small fund for us to collect in that area, Uh um, which was an expendable fund. So every year I go to the Outsider Art Fair in New York City, and I am always looking for Uh works that would fit with the collection. Much of the collection is figurative, Uh like Inez's work, and some of it has to do with Religion and spiritual visionary type of work, which
0: is consistent with the genre in a way, isn't it? I mean, a lot of outsider art
1: is very frequently it is because some of these artists have a vision, you know, religious Uh vision or a spiritual vision where God tells them that they should make art.
0: Wonder, I'm a medievalist. I wonder if medievalist colleagues would consider Hildegard of Bingen to be an outsider artist because her art fits in in terms of the way it looks, and she wasn't a mystic. So no,
1: and I think if you go back in history. You find many artists who were untrained and uh-huh. were not part of the academy. Yeah. They wouldn't have been named outsider art, but you can kind of retrospectively use that kind of label. Yeah, well,
0: we them. used to use the word primitive art, remember, yes. uh, back when, when the only outsider art I knew were Henri Rousseau and Grandma Moses was mm-hmm. very popular. So yeah. it has been popular in the past. That's right. And um, it's had yeah. various
1: names. There's also been, you know, Art Brute, if you look yeah, uh-huh. at some of the collections in Europe uh-huh. they'll often still use that term yeah. and that of course came from Jean de buffet and his uh, early yeah. collections of the art of the insane and yeah. children's art uh,
0: although there must be a range of pricing for this I mean Henri Rousseau goes for a lot of money I'm sure yes. so yes uh,
1: I mean there are, and
0: even Grandma Moses uh, could command a lot of money for uh, that's uh,
1: right yeah. and Bill trailer yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know there are a number of artists at this point whose work, because there's a finite amount of it up there Uh and it's become very well known. The prices can range to, you know, up in the 100 to $200,000 for a tiny drawing, Mm -hmm. but then you can also find these fantastic finds for, you know, less than a $1,000 sometimes. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so you have had in the past other uh, outsider art exhibitions since we started collecting outsider art, yes? Yeah.
1: Yes, that's right. So the first one was in 2009, yeah. and, and speaking of religious art, that one was called Faith and Fantasy uh-huh. in Outsider Art and looked at the overlap between uh-huh. religious art and fantasy uh-huh. art uh-huh. and sort of how uh-huh. those things play out in uh-huh. some of the works. That was all from our collection. And then in 2014... I did another exhibition called Faces and Figures in Self-Taught Art, and that combined works from our collection that Pat Parsons had donated Mm -hmm. and a number of loans from other museums and local collections. And so those were both group exhibitions, but this is the first... Solo exhibition uh-huh. that we've done. So
0: the question comes up, if outsider art is, is affordable, people could collect it. I mean, ordinary people could begin collecting, you know, yeah. building collections. Is it easy to make? That's the question. I mean, what is outsider art? I mean, could anybody sit down and, you know, draw a picture and then without any training and say, I have, you know, a piece of outsider art? Or is there something that gives it a kind of value in the genre to collectors? Because it begs the question or, or calls up the question, what is art? Yes. And what's the relation of this to the kinds of things that galleries used to collect, which would cause them to overlook this kind of art. Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: yeah, and I think really the big question to ask has more to do with what criteria uh, will we yeah. apply uh-huh. when judging work that's yeah. made by an untrained artist. Yeah, it's a
0: curatorial question. Yeah, yeah and yeah.
1: it's definitely a different criteria than you would apply to mm-hmm. really any other area of art. Mm-hmm. So often you're looking more at... Whether or not this artist is original, if mm-hmm. they're stylistically cohesive, mm-hmm. as Inez Walker certainly is. Yes. Also, you know, there is an uh, attention to craftsmanship. Yeah. Whether it really reflects what is being depicted, in other words, something in reality, mm-hmm. is not really the question you want to ask, mm-hmm. right? You want to ask these other questions about style, about materials, mm-hmm. about originality. And really, I think there are things that really strike the viewer in an emotional way. Uh And often with these artists, you do look at the backstory. Uh You examine the person's biography Mm -hmm. and see how they were able to create work, even when they're up against incredible obstacles. Yeah, yeah.
0: So it's an example, I suppose, of art and life being melded together in a nice way, which is what Molly Nesbitt's always preaching, that art should be part of life. There shouldn't be a distinction between the two. And this it sort That's of right. happens naturally. I mean, you want you wonder about the artist when you see the work. Right? Well, and then and then there's yeah.
1: the other area of self-taught art where artists make entire environments, and they live... For instance, Noah Purify, for, um, he has this giant piece of property in the California desert that he transformed... Uh-huh. Or someone like Simon Rodia, and you know, these West Coast artists who live on a strange piece of property that they sort of create a whole world uh-huh. in, and their uh-huh. life is uh, yes, their art.
0: Is, yeah, yeah, they live in their art, that's so interesting. So, yeah, so yeah. it
1: really does cross over into lifestyle. Yeah. For and, and in artists. this case,
0: uh, with Walker, the art is a part of her life in that it's helping her get through a bad time, isn't it? Oh, very, yeah, very much um, so, yeah. You know,
1: the wonderful thing about the research on this exhibition, I was able to read some of her notes, Uh um, notes that she had written to Pat Uh Parsons. And also, I had the fantastic privilege of listening to the one recorded interview with the Uh artist. And that was with the collector Michael Hall. Uh And he shared the recording with me. And she's hard to understand, so you have to listen to it, you know, three or four times before it really begins to soak in. And one of the things that she said, first she said, I love to draw. Mm -hmm. And then she also said maybe in a slightly cryptic way she said you know whenever I wanted to forget about it Uh and she just said it It, uh you don't know what it is is it the murder (laughs) is it the time in prison who knows what other troubles in her life I would go to my table and pull out my pencils and Uh my paper and I would just set to drawing Uh so it was an escape Uh Um, and she would go into a drawing Uh and sort of be able to remove herself from some thoughts or memories, yeah, or interesting. It's very interesting. So yeah. yeah, so in a
0: way, it's not just subjective art; it's objective art, and that the world is pulling her out into it. You know, yeah, when she, when she tries to represent it. So uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And
1: she did, and she would always do it from memory, uh-huh. never from a model.
0: Oh, really? So uh, the portraits that she does early on, those are from memory. They're not from people sitting in. in That's right. In, you know, yeah, in, in um, a prison cell. Uh, she yeah, said yeah. she couldn't
1: do it. She yeah. said, I, w- "I wish I could do that, but yeah. I just, oh, I yeah. just can't. Yeah. I can only kind of." get into my drawing and, and make oh. what I, what
0: comes to mind. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. You know, I was interested, you know, talking about her life, in your presentation at the opening and that you didn't dwell on her prison experience or even, I think, mention the circumstance that got her into prison. You just kind of ignored it the way her art seems to be trying to do. And I thought it actually said something about the reality of prison experience in our society that you cast it as something quite ordinary in a way, you know, not paying much mind. Since, such a large part of the American population now, especially people of color, are indeed you know inhabitants of prison. It's a, it's a 2. world two
1: point two million yeah, Americans.
0: Yeah, no, no other nation in the world has. Yeah. Uh, it, it comes close to the kind of percentage of people that are in prison. We live in a prison society. Yeah. We may not see it. You yeah. know, because unless you're working in a prison or in a town that, that where it's the chief industry, you, you don't know about it. But right. these people are all hidden, but they're, you know, they're hidden in plain sight in a way. They're all around us. So. Yeah. so the fact that you didn't make a big deal of it, I was really impressed, <laughs> I have to say, with that part of the talk. And you, yeah. you really looked at her work stylistically, and, and you fit it into the genre of outsider art. That's right, yeah. And you talked about her, and you talked about Pat Parsons. But the lurid, whatever it is, that attracts people, because here we have, a, you know, an artist who was a murderer. You yeah. Know? You didn't make a big deal of it, which says something about us, too, the fact that people would be so interested in that. People are fascinated by that and
1: and often ask me, you know, how did she do it? (laughs) (laughs) But I did do that intentionally, Uh and and part of that is because she lived a long time. You know, she was Uh, in her 80s when she died. She only spent less than two years in prison. So while it was a transformative period, because that's where she began to draw, it didn't define her life. Her
0: life, her whole life, yeah.
1: And most of what we see in the galleries was made after she was released from yeah, prison. Uh-huh, yeah. So as much as you know, that point was a turning point, I didn't want to dwell on it because these were not works mostly made in prison. Uh-huh. There are fantastic works being made in prison right yeah, now. Yes, uh-huh. And we had a lovely talk by Nicole Fleetwood last week that examined some of that work mm-hmm. and what's happening in prisons. Because I think that's fascinating in its own right. I don't think it applies as much to this artist's work because she just didn't spend a lot of time there. Mm. And it doesn't really reflect prison life.
0: No, it doesn't. That's true. These are just straight-up portraits in a sense. Yeah, but it did attract
1: me to her work because I'm fascinated as well in how things have gotten to this point, that we have 2.2 million Americans living in prison. And what's also fascinating to me is that her sentence was so short. Mm-hmm. She was sentenced to no more than four years, even though she did kill someone. Yeah. And that would have been something somewhat typical of the 1970s. Yeah. In fact, the day that she was sentenced, another woman who had a similar situation was given the exact same sentence, yeah. both by the same judge. Oh, uh-huh. And that judge was later given an award uh-huh. for taking uh-huh. into consideration women and their circumstances, oh, uh-huh. often women of color. Uh-huh. Today... I would say there might even be a bias in the other direction. Yes, yeah. And people's sentences are 100 years, 200 years, well, know, well, life yeah. plus 50 yeah, years. Yeah, lock
0: her up, isn't that? The chant of yeah. people on the right, so... Uh, yeah, yeah, so...
1: So it did fascinate me that her sentence was so short and that she started to make work in prison. Yeah. yeah.
0: So you have an, an exhibition catalog that you've done. You have an essay in it. And I have to say, it's a beautiful publication. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and it's
1: just... it's so nice to be able to produce these small books. It's only 60 pages. Uh-huh. It's a modest publication. Uh-huh. But it does everything I set out to do. It has the first bibliography on the artist. Uh-huh. It has a list of her publications. And then one of the most gratifying parts of the research for this show was to create an accurate timeline of the artist's life Mm -hmm. because as I began the research I discovered that there were conflicting stories Ah, out there uh a lot of people had her born in 1910, 1911, 1912 she was actually born in 1907 Uh her migration to the north had been very fuzzy in terms of what years Mm -hmm. these things happened so in order to sort of set the record straight I was very pleased to be able to produce a timeline that Mm. is heavily documented and footnoted Uh from the beginning of her life to the end. And to produce her first publication, and what I like about being able to do that is that it includes the very first work she made Uh while in prison all the way to the very last works yeah. that she made in the last year of her life.
0: Yeah, there's quite a lot here, and a lot of color. I mean, beautiful color. And the graphics, especially these early pages where you've got a deep color uh, blue for the uh, essay. George uh, Laws came Stoss. up with yeah. the yeah. So design. the color scheme, yeah. So it's really almost a little artist book in the exhibition catalog. Yeah. and a beautiful photograph of her real life here. I love uh, that, in, that uh, photograph. The seventies, and, and yeah. A
1: black-and-white version of that had been published uh, before in little brochures, oh, but look, never in color.
0: Her coat there. Are so incredibly colorful. So
1: She was really interested uh, in fabrics, fabric, yeah. and a lot of her portraits are wearing yeah, yeah, hats, you, you, and you, she has this fantastic crocheted hat uh-huh. on. So yeah, that's an important part of the, the yeah. story.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that in your descriptions of the works, that she was a seamstress at one time, yes? So she's yes. really interested in fabrics, and she puts a lot of fabric right in her uh, She portrait. does in the so pattern. She she's very interested them, yeah. in pattern of yeah. fabric.
1: And in the interview that I listened to, she said that she could walk down the street and see someone's dress or blouse or a pair of pants, and she could go home without a pattern and Uh recreate that. So she did make clothing. Oh,
0: that's something. Yeah. So she really likes to draw people. I mean, most of the works, they're portraits or they're group portraits anyway, and there are always people in them, sometimes children, sometimes adults, but always people. Yeah. So she's a portrait artist. We have a whole genre of that. I mean, we had a portrait show a few months ago, right? The thing about portrait artists is they aren't always kind to their sitters. (laughs) Right. Um, even when they seem to be there, they're not always kind. But she is. You get the feeling that she really likes people and that these people that she's drawing, she really almost enters into them. It's hard to say what it is, but you get a sense that she really enjoys their presence in a way and that she yeah. creates this in, And uh, And I think you know drawing.
1: maybe it's the eyes yeah. because she does focus uh, quite uh, seriously she, uh, on the eyes, eyes and the yeah. eyelashes uh-huh. yeah. and the eyes are always frontal, even if the portrait is a yeah. profile. Uh-huh. So there's a connection there. Uh And then in the two-person portraits, which are some of my favorites, even though the eyes seem to stare out at the viewer, there also seems to be an eye contact happening between Between the two sitters. sitters, And there's also, they connect through gesture, they're often reaching out to one another with their little stumpy hands. (laughs) Um, So yeah, they're lovingly drawn. There is a sense that I've recognized that some of the people in her portraits are meant to be kind, mm-hmm. or she considers them kind, and yeah. other are somewhat uh, sort of ominous, oh, yeah. where they have kind of a, a mad-looking yeah. expression on their yeah. face. And you know, I think she does capture uh-huh. personality, yeah. Yeah. mood,
0: yeah.
1: you know, feeling. I think she captures a lot in these. Yeah. And the other thing I would mention in terms of these being portraits are the colors that she uses for skin tones Uh which I find fascinating because I tried to kind of decode Uh the skin tones and see whether or not I thought they were meant to reflect race or ethnicity and sometimes I think it is and you can kind of match the hair to the skin and kind of guess this person might be Caucasian this person might be African-American but then in other cases there isn't such an obvious match and I think she is taking certain liberties Uh and deciding she likes how pink looks with brown and so uh one one Uh character will have pink and one will have brown Uh and then I've seen skin tones that she made in dark Purple, yeah. in jet black and yellow. Uh-huh. You know, so it's not always meant to be. Act-
0: Interesting, uh, almost as though she's seeing through race. You know, I, think I, so. I don't see colors. <laughs> Who said that recently? But that's uh, right. No one believed him. But
1: and especially, there's this one portrait at the very end of the exhibition, which, as I mentioned in my presentation, I believe to be a portrait of her and Pat Parsons. Yes, huh? Yeah. And that one does seem to have some accuracy in terms of. Hairstyle, skin tone, yeah, the way it, that yeah. they stand. Yeah. Pat was very tall, Inez was very short, mm-hmm. so it, it reflects these uh, characteristics of their. It's actually not reproduced in the catalog. Oh, it's not, okay. But it's a wonderful portrait. It's the largest work she ever made, yeah. and the paper was actually supplied by Pat Parsons. Oh. Pat writes about this in yeah. an essay she wrote. It's 29 by 41 inches oh, okay. oh. and it, she does a fantastic job of scaling up her composition.
0: So the eyes, she always has these uh, sort of squiggles around their eyelashes, actually, yeah. not eyebrows, their eyelashes. Yeah. And they give the eyes a kind of uncanny sense and then you, you couple that with the patterns that she fills in that represent the background, basically, whatever yeah. scene that she's doing. And you do get a really strong sense of the uncanny in these, in some, yes. in some of them. And I would even say... It comes through uh, uh, very 60s, 70s. Yeah, style. a, a max, little psychedelic. Yeah. yeah.
1: But yeah, th- this weavy lines... That kind of radiate out, and sometimes they're concentric lines, uh radiate out from the figure or the face that really kind of echo those lashes around the eyes, echo the repeating lines of the hair, uh and often echo the repeating lines that she adds as patterning to the clothing. Clothing, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, very strange. And then also she likes big heads, obviously, (laughs) most of her portraits have big heads. Yes. And then um, there are other things that are minimized, like objects. When mm-hmm. people are holding glasses, they, you're right, she has little hands, so she yes. usually do, does hands very small, and they're holding these teeny tiny objects often, you know, so they, it looks like everybody's drinking, if they're drinking, they're drinking out of shot glasses <laughs> yes. almost, you know. But, but I then a the cigarette
1: is a regular size. Uh, oh, so is maybe, it? Okay. You know, sometimes yeah. you'll see the, a little smoking cigarette. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, I, they, I think they she emphasizes manage, the yeah. people, yeah. Um, emphasizes their faces. Uh-huh. These are the things I think that interest her the most, uh, yes. uh-huh. because they're an avenue for her expressing emotion, uh expressing connection between two figures perhaps. And then I think she was more confident too Uh in her abilities with creating faces and figures than Mm -hmm. she was of creating a space. And while both are sort of a flattened perspective, you're able to get a sense of the figure in the face even with the flattened perspective where it's a little more difficult to... Flatten out a room yeah. and all of its details. Yeah. And so you can see that there's a little less skill there, but yeah. still, it makes for a fascinating yeah. composition. Yeah,
0: it does. I notice with the clothes, even sometimes, like, you know, you'll have a tie, and it'll, it'll just be like a teeny tiny little bow tie. Yes. And then the men's shirt pockets always look like, you know, they're just little things that hold a marble, maybe. Yes, like yeah. So, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, her proportions are spectacular. Yeah, in fact, I think are, that's yeah. one of the things I like the oh, best yeah, about her work.
0: Yeah. And then uh, she also has like these little odd motifs, decorative motifs almost. Sometimes heart shapes she'll put in.
1: Yeah, or plants. Or plants, uh,
0: yes. Uh-huh. And they're very striking. They catch your attention. Yeah, and
1: there's a study actually, also in the last room of the galleries, and it's done oh, this, very yeah. late in life.
0: I guess that's it. that is a plant, the heart-shaped. Oh, yeah, so she does heart-shaped
1: that. plants with leaves. Yeah. And uh, those motifs show up in this one drawing that doesn't have any people in it. And it almost looks as though she's doing a study for the kinds of decor that end up in the background oh, of one of these uh-huh. great portraits. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then these odd band-aids, too. That <laughs> they seem to be very in the background sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh-huh.
1: they're kind of... 3D X's or yeah, something.
0: Yeah. and then uh, what's most charming for me are the animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she really takes trouble to make these animals come mm-hmm. to life. Yes, and they're a big part of the life of a scene. So she'll put in these little animals. Sometimes you know they're drawn like little stuffed animals, but they're. I mean, <laughs> but they're supposed yeah. to be real animals. Yes, but so. it is. It's and they're odd. You know, you see chickens in the house. Odd uh, relationship know, yeah. between people and animals. Yeah.
1: And, you know, maybe this is connected to her history with farm work. Oh, uh-huh. You know, she worked on farms much of her early life. Uh-huh. While she didn't necessarily like it, she certainly had a familiarity with it. Yeah. And it's interesting, in the notes between Pat and Inez, Pat is looking at some of the animal drawings, and mm-hmm. she's advising her, and she says, if you could only make the drawings of the animals the way that you depict hair. Oh. <laughs> so she, I think she was basically coaching her to pay more detailed attention to the,
0: uh-huh. to the animals yeah. and that
1: maybe she would be able to perfect them more, yeah, fill, give them a little more life. Fill
0: in the outline, yeah. So she has this one with a big horse in it. does not she? Yes. Sure what the scene is. It looks like I don't know someone either. Someone's standing on a table and the horse has got his front legs on the table and it looks like it's kind of licking her there but it almost looks say, like yeah. a circus scene to it me it does yeah it does oh. but it's
1: very ambiguous yeah. and i'm i'm really not sure yeah. what's happening yeah. there <laughs> and also
0: this one where she has a tortoise with two little girls they're obviously little girls by their faces but also i don't know they just strike you as little girls maybe yeah it's by are clothing. clothing they're short and then the turtle has the uh head of a little girl Yes, it's very odd. Um,
1: And this one, okay, so this is interesting to me. It was made in 1975, and she also says that she's in Philadelphia Uh at the time. So Inez at this point was living sort of most of her time in New York, upstate New York. But then when she was out of work, she would go down and live with her son Sylvester, Uh who lived in Philly. And her son had kids. So she would sometimes draw with her grandkids. And I know this because one of the drawings in the show is signed william nathaniel so that's yeah, yeah. i think sylvester's son and my sense is that they were drawing together uh-huh. or maybe granny was teaching the grandkids how to draw oh, oh. and that the turtle drawing i think is a collaborative piece yeah. where inez made one of the figures yeah. and then coached her grandchild to do the other figure oh,
0: uh-huh. and then oh, yeah. they
1: possibly collaborated on the turtle because yeah. if you look at the turtle's profile,
0: yeah.
1: the face is done in a different style yes, yeah. than her typical figure. Yeah, her typical and face. one of the
0: girls has her typical eye, and the other girl doesn't. Does not. Doesn't, yet.
1: yeah. And, so yeah, so I'm not certain because it's signed by yeah. Inez, so yeah. it seems that so. she authored it, but I think she might have co-authored yeah.
0: that. Uh, interesting. Sometimes the backgrounds emulate the backgrounds of Paper scraps, don't they? Her, yes. I mean she draws in lines as though you know And that one a, in
1: particular. And yeah. it's possible, let's say that was a child helping her. Yeah. That it looks a little bit like school lined paper.
0: Yeah, yeah, it does. So. Except it's not school lined paper. It's I mean it's, it's hand drawn, it's, it's yes. Hand-drawn. Yeah. yeah.
1: So.
0: so how do you have the, the show arranged in the gallery? I mean you've got three spaces and often things are divided up. But That's uh, right.
1: Um, so it is somewhat chronological. In uh-huh. other words, the very first gallery has her very first works. uh uh-huh and that grows into from singular portraits to double portraits mm-hmm. in that space the center gallery is predominantly works from her most prolific years mm-hmm. which were 75 and 76 and during those years i know this from going through the archives at the folk art museum she had sketchbooks they have about 50 sketchbooks oh. and each one has either 24 50 or 100 pages mm-hmm. so page after page after page that she was working on prolifically during this period. uh So most of those works are from that period, except for a few that are, I call her, mature work from Mm -hmm. 1978. Mm -hmm. And then the last gallery is sort of a mixture, but it does include her very last works that were made in 1990. Uh So as I say, it's somewhat chronological, but it's also set up so that comparisons can be made between... Single portraits, full-length portraits, hmm. double portraits, scenes, interior scenes, and then late works. Hmm. Yeah. Do you have any
0: favorite pieces yeah. in the show?
1: Favorite pieces. Well, the main piece that's on the cover of the catalog uh-huh. and that it was also on the invitation is this piece called Frontal Man, uh-huh. and it's a drawing that she made in 1976. So this is shortly after she became Inez Walker. Uh That's the other thing. She early on signs her work, Inez Nathaniel. And right around the middle of 1975, she marries someone with the last name Walker Uh and takes on his name. And people have asked me, what makes this piece, how do you know it's a man? Which we don't necessarily know it's a man, but most of the works were untitled. Mm -hmm. And later titles were added either by the collector or perhaps if there was a conversation that happened between Pat Parsons, and the artist and she said oh this is a man oh, and then uh, she yeah, was able okay, to yeah. title it that way. Yeah. But I just love the expression on the face it has all the classic Inez Walker stylistic characteristics mm-hmm. so from the tight curls of this sort of perfectly round helmet shaped afro yeah. to the knitted eyebrows to the curled eyelashes mm-hmm. we talked about yeah. to the expressive facial features like the mouth and the nose and also this very intricate design of the blouse and instead of just x's or lines in the background she's included x's o's and a bunch of flowers and lovely plants plants, i mean i just think that there's really something exuberant and, yeah, there is. And um, there's, it looks like there's a,
0: a curtain ab- above there that's being lowered or that's <laughs> yes. been raised almost. You know, yeah, it's, it's almost it's, theatrical. It's like a stage scene or, or somebody looking out a window. Yeah, it is. Yeah, 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 it's yeah beautiful I just love thing, it. So, yeah.
1: It has such a good energy. Yeah.
0: So the end of her life was rather sad, yes? I mean, and it shows up in her work.
1: It's unclear exactly what was happening during those years. Yeah. What we know is that by 1984, she had at least been admitted once mm-hmm. to Willard, which was a psychiatric ward, in upstate New York mm-hmm. um, she she seemingly was in and out of Willard yeah. during the last six years of her life she died in 1990 but during that time it seems she has a somewhat rapid decline mm-hmm. from someone who's able to draw every single hair in yeah. an afro to yeah. someone who is really just able to make scribbles on yeah. a notebook page yeah. and part of that was the materials that she was offered yeah. there I know that she died of pancreatic cancer, Um, so I don't think she was ill for a. Typically, it wouldn't be a a long time. But there might have been some mental issues happening, some decline in visual acuity, mental acuity, and possibly some pharmaceuticals that would have affected her abilities. Uh But that's really all we know. Strangely, I was at the opening and a gentleman came up to me and said that he used to be an auditor Uh for psychiatric wards in the state of New York. uh And he went there in 1988 remember seeing her there oh, really? oh. and remember seeing some of her drawings oh. while he was there. Oh really? Oh. So that was fascinating yeah, yeah. to get some evidence. Yeah, it of her is, yeah, it is.
0: You wonder what did happen there.
1: Yeah, it's unclear and she really yeah. lost touch with Pat Parsons yeah. right around nineteen eighty four.
0: But she did keep in touch with her son, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. So
1: her son and some of her other offspring mm-hmm. grandkids and they were given all of her late, late works oh, uh-huh. when she died, and then her son sold them to the Folk Art Museum.
0: Yeah. So is it just the Folk Art Museum? or are they, Because you've got uh, works from other places besides, don't you? So Quite a the number, other actually. Yeah.
1: wonderful collection that I was able to borrow from is the Parsons Family Collection. Oh, okay. So Pat yeah. Parsons' two daughters, Lori and Amy, yeah. they mostly are housed at Amy's home in Bedford, mm-hmm. and they have a number of works still, in their collections. And now that they've seen this exhibition and there's a renewed interest in the work, they're thinking about continuing to donate them to museum collections. Oh, great. Um, And so there's currently, I think, her work is in 14 public collections, which are all listed Mm -hmm. in the catalog. We're hoping to increase that number. And there's a slight chance that the exhibition will travel to one of these other museums that own her work. So I see this exhibition really as the beginning of a deeper understanding uh-huh. and exposure uh-huh. of this work to the public.
0: Yeah, wonderful. So, you know, the question comes up, I didn't ask it, maybe I ought to have asked it earlier, what's the benefit of outsider art? I mean, why should galleries show it? You mentioned uh, that Jerry Saltz had seen at least a press release of the show.
1: Yes, an image of the show. Yeah, yeah,
0: and had a little blog post saying, if only the Museum of Modern Art would put this piece in their 1970s gallery, exactly. it would be Exactly. But wonderful. So, um,
1: so yeah, Jerry Saltz, New York Magazine writer, obviously, and Roberta Smith in the New York Times are both proponents of this idea of mixing it up. Uh-huh. So including exhibitions, rehangs of permanent collections that juxtapose work made outside of the Academy mm-hmm. with um, the big greats that yeah, we all uh-huh, know yeah. as a way to really change this kind of patriarchal colonial past yeah. uh-huh. that privileges certain types of artists uh-huh. over others. Oh interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well the art world's been engaged in this kind of dialogue for a long time, all right? I mean yeah. there was literally the academy at one time, you know, That's the French right. Academy, the British Academy, the Royal Society and yeah. only those artists could get in and show and then the doors were finally kind of opened and especially in the modern world you know uh, Absolutely. so i mean you could see abstract expressionism as outsider art of a kind you know from this yeah. perspective so
1: and really to yeah. answer your question more fully you know if you go back to Jean Dubuffet and his initial interest in this kind of work uh-huh. his idea is that once someone begins training in mm-hmm. art that they lose this more direct immediate Expression uh-huh. that they might have when they're children, for yeah, instance. Uh-huh. So many people say every child is an artist, uh-huh. and it isn't until they get to their first art class when someone says, oh, no, that's not how yes. you make yeah, a yeah, person yeah. or a yeah, horse or color a turtle. should be inside the lines. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, and, and that that sort of yeah. breaks them of oh. their real raw talent. Uh-huh. And so this idea of raw art, untrained art, direct, immediate art, this is the mm. kind of thing that people strive for. Yeah. I mean you could even talk Picasso
0: about Picasso, yes, right. Picasso you know, yeah, yeah. or someone
1: like Jean Michel Basquiat, who yeah, was uh-huh. just a street yeah. artist yeah. and was later sort of indoctrinated into the art world. I think it's that early impulse to make art that has nothing to do with the market, has nothing to do with Training or the way things are supposed to be done that really inspires originality, Uh sort of breaks out of the typical things that we constantly see over and over again, recycled at auction and in galleries. And also, I would argue that this is now being much more paid attention to by young artists. Uh Uh So, if you go to Lower East Side and some of these very edgy galleries, Uh you find artwork. That might be an artist who graduated from SVA or the Columbia MFA program, but their work uh-huh. looks, as Jerry Saltz calls it, outsidery. Oh. So they're uh-huh. trying to sort of push away all of their training and sort of, they now know the rules and now they're going to break them all uh-huh. and create work that. Looks as though it's made by an untrained hand. Uh
0: Uh great! So
1: I think the influence is now sort of flowing in both ways. Yeah,
0: Yeah. it would be an interesting experience for museum goers if museums open up to this kind of thing more. more, You know, because when you put two pieces of work next to one another, each reflects on the other in an interesting way. So, the traditional stuff can inform the outsider stuff, and the outsider stuff can inform the the traditional. Yeah, and that is
1: beginning to happen a little bit more. There's a large show that was organized by the National Gallery of Art, and that happened just last year, about a year ago, mm-hmm. and it, I can't remember the exact name, but it was a show that did that this exact thing, and it also had these sort of crossover artists, so uh-huh. someone like Florine Stetheimer uh-huh. was in that exhibition, oh, yes. and uh-huh. yeah. while she ran in the circles of very well-known artists, yeah. she herself was untrained, yeah. and her work had this very self-taught look to it um, which is one of the things that is appealing about it so that show was in a way the first big exhibition that tried to reconcile these ideas Uh but I think we're going to see more of that oh great I mean the other place that maybe you would see that would have been the Venice Biennale that happened I think now it's been four years ago and it was the palace of everything was uh the theme and that included about maybe 40% self-taught artists in the main exhibition. Yeah,
0: interesting. Yeah. And then there are other categories of art that can fall into this. Art by children, for one. Yes. Uh, uh, Art of the so-called insane, you know, um, that's done for therapy, but, you know, there are objects that are produced from it, so... uh...
1: Yeah, and I have to say, I am fascinated by children's art, Uh and I don't know what I'm going to do with that idea. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Um, Because it's a slippery slope, you don't want to just appreciate art because it's made by a child but to really figure out what the criteria are for looking at children's art and do something with that
0: Uh, yeah it sounds great so (laughs) so what have you got on the stove at the moment for the future um, well this week week we're
1: actually installing an interesting exhibition that's both in our focus gallery and our photo gallery Uh and the exhibition has the same title as a conference that will be happening on april 5th through 7th Uh uh-huh on campus that's co-organized by Mia Mask from the film department and Hiram Perez from the English department. And both the conference and the exhibition are titled Quiet As It's Kept, Passing Subjects, Contested Identities. And it, they both deal with this idea of passing, yes, uh-huh. either racial passing or in some cases, gender passing, uh-huh. um, class, you know, there are various forms of passing. Mm-hmm. And the idea for this exhibition came from a renewed interest at Vassar because of Karen Tanabe's recent book that was based on Anita Hemmings, who's the first known African-American student to graduate from Vassar Mm -hmm. back in the 19th century. She actually came here as a white student and Mm -hmm. was later discovered to be Mm African-American, was able to graduate even though it was not officially welcoming African-American students at that stage. And now there will be a film based on that book and it will be a big Hollywood production. And so these professors decided that they wanted to have a scholarly conversation Mm -hmm. about passing Mm -hmm. that could kick off this idea Mm. that Hollywood is attempting to Uh. present. So the exhibition is really cool. It has Uh. artists from the 60s and 70s, as well as much more contemporary artists, Uh. and a few earlier pieces from the 1930s and even the 19th century. Uh. Yeah, it it. sounds
0: interesting. I mean, the whole... um The whole concept of cultural construction of identity comes up, doesn't it? Yes. uh, and the fact that we're all acting all the time in a way—you know—we're all playing a role in some kind of this sort of idea of code switching, um,
1: being able to blend into whatever environment yeah. you were in
0: uh-huh. yes uh-huh. Yeah. yeah interesting okay so I'd like to thank you Mary Kay for visiting with us on the library cafe again uh, to talk about your show freehand drawings by Innes and Nathaniel Walker up until April, four- April 14th. 14th just yeah. before uh, income tax day exactly so, great so thanks yeah, for yeah thank so,
1: you so much for having me